Well, friends, I am sad to report that summer is coming to an end. Does that just make you sad when I say that? I'm sorry. I apologize. But it's the truth. It is coming to an end. Uh, If you go outside after 8 o'clock these days, it's starting to get dark outside. What is up? With that, and I know that uh, for some of our college students, school is starting back up. Many of our elementary, high school, junior high students, we've just got a couple more weeks until we are back in classes, interacting with things called syllabi and doing homework and things like that, right? And, and that's, let me just say that while you have it, the academic calendar is a joy, right? To have a actual summer where you get an extended amount of time off. I mean, don't you remember those days? Some of us, some of us are still there, but some of us, it's a distant memory where we got like two months off and it just felt like, yes, this is so exciting. This is so free. And then you get bored eventually. But, but they, I mean, it's such a great time. And some of us have had to say goodbye to summer like that. It's like a week that we get off. Uh, but we want to keep the summer of joy going here at Compass HB, right? We never intended, when we labeled it that, to have joy be a seasonal thing here at our church, right? And so today, what we're going to do is, is we're going to find out how can we keep the joy going, not just during the summertime, but all the time. And so I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32, and we'll be examining this psalm and, and hopefully through what we've heard this summer from God's word and what we'll hear today, that the joy is just going to get stirred up. It's going to get so stoked up that we're just going to keep rolling down the joy tracks for the rest of our lives even. So I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 32. It's on page 462. And let's actually stand, and we're going to read this entire psalm together. Let's stand in honor of God's word and read Psalm 32 together. It says, this is a mascal of David. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That ends the reading of God's word. You may have a seat. Well, you can notice by that last verse why I selected this psalm 
for today. Shout for for joy. We want to experience that joy that is offered in Christ, and we want to express that joy. And so let's actually examine how we get to this response in verse 11. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, and you can see, look at these first two verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We start off, David starts off with just this statement of truth that blessed is the person that is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, the word blessed is not really one that we use in our culture without a hashtag before it, right? Um, but really, we could even probably better translate that word happy, right? Do you understand what happy means? You could write that down, that happy is the one whose transgression. This kind of happiness, this kind of joy, where does it come from? If you were to ask people around here in North Orange County, where does happiness come from? Where is it found? Well, some people might say, in the summertime. So I've got a couple more weeks of happiness before I go back to school and my life is over, right? And there's no more happiness to be found in my English composition class or something like that. Or happiness is found when things are going well in my life, that, hey, everything's going the way I hoped it would, and, and that's, that's making me happy. Happiness is found in other people. When I'm, when I'm really having other people treat me the way I would like to have them treat me, when I really feel loved and appreciated, then I'm happy. Or, or happiness is found in all those plans that I've got, all those things that I've been working towards really succeeding, coming to fruition. Those projects I've been hammering on, I want to see those things really work out. Or maybe happiness is found when other people know who I am, when they really respect and appreciate my skills and abilities and my contributions or maybe happiness is found in things that I have, a house, possessions, a car, technology, or pleasures that I can find in this life. David is some, saying something so profoundly different than the way we naturally think in America today. You want to know where he's saying happiness comes from? It comes from forgiveness. Happiness comes from forgiveness. And, and look at the words that he uses here for what we're forgiven for. It says in verse 1, whose transgression is forgiven. That means uh, passing over a boundary or doing what is prohibited. We might think of it as almost like trespassing today, where we would go on to some kind of property like Area 51 or something like that, where entrance is prohibited, not really recommended to do that. Or, or, and then he says, whose sin is covered. Sin is really a, a word that means missing the mark or not doing something that is commanded. It says in verse 2, blesses the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, I mean, these are all kind of words describing sin, but this word iniquity, it really has the connotation of something being morally distorted or perverted. I mean, that's what sin is. It's, it's so twisted. It's so, I mean, we've got such a, a thought to minimize sin. We just kind of think of it as a mistake in our culture, but really it's gross. It's grossly perverting. Uh, the goodness of God for us to sin when he's been so good, for us to disobey his commands when his commands are only there for our good and for our joy. That's so twisted. That's so, so sick. And then it says at the end of verse 2, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I mean, isn't just sin so despicable in the way it lies to us? That it promises happiness and maybe it might deliver for a brief moment or for a short period of time, 
But in the end, it just brings guilt. It just brings shame. It just brings sorrow. I mean, that's what we need to be forgiven for, and that's what we all have. So let's get this down for point number one, if you're taking notes, that you need to find happiness in your sin being covered. If you really want to have joy continue in your life, if you really want it to not be a seasonal thing or a momentary thing in your life, you need to be absolutely sure here this morning that your sin has been covered by the Lord. That's the only way. We can try to pursue our plans. We can try to find happiness in in all of these different things. It's never going to happen without forgiveness in our lives. Now, David, he he really gets into some real talk with us here this morning. He, He says that, but then he's like, let me tell you how that went down in my own life. Look at verse three. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So David was saying that there was a time in his life, and if you know the life of David, you might uh, think of maybe one or two different times where this could have been the case, where there was sin that was happening in David's life, and rather than dealing with it, rather than being honest about it and going to the Lord, it says he kept silent. He wasn't talking about it. He wasn't talking about it with other people. He wasn't talking about it with the Lord. And how did that go for David? He says, my bones wasted away. I mean, some serious osteoporosis happening in David's life. I mean, uh, I mean he's just using that to describe this, this thing that he just felt like, man, I, I don't have any structure. And, and it's coming through my groaning all day long. Have you ever been in so much pain that, like, you've been groaning? Ever had a stomach ache so bad that you're just like, oh, right? Like, you can't help but express the pain that you are feeling. David was saying that was happening in his life. And why was that happening? He says in verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. I want you to know that God is actively against sin in our lives. Here, here it was. It's like God was, was kind of placing his hand on David, and David was feeling the weight of it. David was feeling the weight of his sin, that God was not going to be disengaged with this in David's life. He loved David, and so he was going to press on David a little bit. He was going to keep him from experiencing happiness and joy until he got to the point where he was really going to deal with his Sin, And he describes, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, I mean, praise the Lord, we have enjoyed a relatively mild summer here in the coastal regions. I mean, uh, am I right? Has, has that been enjoyable to anyone else? Fewer days of wishing you had air conditioning and things like that. And it still cools down at night here in the coastal regions. So we're, we're living pretty good. We can understand why we pay so much money to live here. But some of us, we've ventured out beyond the coastal regions of California. We've gone to places like Palm Springs. We've already, all, all, some of us ventured all the way to Lake Havasu in Arizona. Now, I mean, in Lake Havasu, was it hot out there? Was it really hot? I mean, we're talking like temperatures that should not exist on this, on this planet. And I mean, we were, we were enjoying the pool or the lake and air conditioning while we were out there. 
But if you spend any amount of extended time out in the heat of those places, you start to understand what David is talking about here. It feels like your strength is literally sapped, like you have no strength. And in Israel, where David was, it gets hot there. I got to go to Israel, and I realized, like, this is more like Palm Springs and Lake Havasu than it is like Huntington Beach. It it got hot there in the summertime. Or maybe even a way that you could translate this is my strength was dried up as by the fever heat of summer. You ever had a fever that's been so high, your temperature, you've been really sick, and all you can do is just lie there? Like you really have no strength to do anything else. Like there's maybe even a cup of water that you could reach, but you got to think about that for a few minutes before you can even really, really go for it. You got to really make a plan for that because your strength, it's like there's nothing there. Like that's what David was experiencing that rather than sin giving him happiness giving him joy giving him life sin was sucking the life out of him and god's hand was heavy upon him and maybe some of us who are here this morning have been deceived or deceiving ourselves into thinking that sin's going to not be that big of a deal in our life that that we can just continue without dealing with it in our life and and maybe we've felt kind of that heavy hand of the Lord. Maybe we felt like life is kind of squishing us down, like our strength is sapped, that there, we can't find that joy and happiness. And David wants to provide an example to you here this morning. Look at what he says he did in verse 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, it's really important that we, we really take note of what David did. He, did. he didn't just pray a quick prayer. All right, I prayed a prayer, so now it's, it's done with, right? Look at what it says. He, he did something positive, and he, and he stopped doing something negative. On the positive side, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I acknowledged it. Now, I mean, this is really saying that I agreed with God about my sin. I agreed with God that as much as he hates it, I have agreed with how hateful and wicked my sin really is. That I've been doing things that have been prohibited. I've been not doing things that I should have been doing. And it's ugly. This iniquity that I've had, it, it's perverse. It is gross. I mean, in America, we have such a casual relationship with sin. We want to treat it like it's no big deal. We shouldn't try to take it seriously. And on the negative side... He says, I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't hide it. I didn't try to make it go away. And oh, there are so many ways, friends, that people are trying to cover their sin today. I mean, I I know some people who are trying to cover their sin with more sin. That when they sin, they feel convicted. They feel guilt based on that. And to basically take away that feeling of guilt, they run to more sin to try to escape from the guilt that they're experiencing. This is a lot of people are trying to escape into substances, into alcohol, that, that hey, even if, even if I can get my mind, if I can distract myself through this substance, even for a short period of time, I'm going to do that. It's going to be able to take away the sting of that guilt that I'm experiencing for even just a moment. Some people are, are throwing themselves into sexual pleasure, sinful sexual pleasure, where it's like, okay, I, I've sinned, and I'm just going to go back and do more sin. I'm just going to try to cover this up by doing it 
again to get my mind off of it. In other ways, people are just distracting themselves with things that aren't necessarily sinful. I'm just going to throw myself into my work, into my career. I'm just going to throw myself into Netflix. I'm going to start binging and just try to distract myself from the guilt that I'm experiencing because of my sin. I'm going to throw myself into my hobby, into something that I enjoy. I'm going to do whatever I can to get away from acknowledging my sin. So many people are doing that. So many people are trying to cover their sin by trying to shift the blame to someone else. Hey, really, that's not my problem. That's my parents' problem. That was the way I was raised or something that happened to me that was wrong in the past. So it's really not my fault that I'm sinning. It's someone else's fault. Or if my circumstances were different, I wouldn't be sinning. If things were going better for me in my life, I wouldn't be sinning. Maybe things aren't going better for you in your life because you're sinning. Or have you ever heard this? Like, hey, this other person really made me so angry. I had to, I had to respond this way. I mean, we can see that pretty clearly that it's not the case when we've got kids, right? Have any of you had your kids kind of pull that one on you? Like, my brother made me do this? Oh, oh, he forced you to punch him in the face? Really? Hmm. Let's see that. But now somehow we've deceived ourselves into thinking that works when we're adults. That my boss really made me do this. That my extended family really made me do this. Or my spouse made me do this. Or my kids made me do this. I mean, maybe even some of us, we've got someone who's trying to help us turn away from sin in our life. Someone in our fellowship group, someone else here at the church that's lovingly coming alongside us and they're, they're calling us out. They're helping us to see our sin and urging us to turn away from it. And rather than actually like allowing that to help us deal with our sin, we're trying to nitpick something about how they're doing it and our sin is left undealt with. Maybe even there's some of us that we've experienced the conviction based on our sin and we're just trying to cover it up with good works. We're thinking, hey, okay, well, I'll go to church. I'll go to church, and that, that'll make me feel better about how I'm living my life for a moment, or I'll, or I'll serve in some way at the church. I'll do something. I'll, I'll, I'll sign up for the parking ministry. I can do that. And then that makes me feel like, okay, even though I'm still living in this sin, even though I'm not dealing with it, I've got the parking ministry. I can really, I can really put my confidence in that. I'm doing something good. But God, somehow my good things are going to overweigh and cover up my bad things that I've done. And David says, I stopped doing that. I mean, friends, a failure to deal with your sin in your life will keep you from joy. I guarantee it. There's no happiness to be found in having sin in our life. It will be impossible for you to find it as hard as you try, as long as you look. You will never find happiness. And David's example is, is here. I, I, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. And look at what he says next. I will confess my transgressions. Do you see how that's plural there? I mean, oftentimes we want to go to the Lord and we just want to deal with maybe the one sin that's making us feel the worst when really there's a whole host of other transgressions that we're not dealing with. So David, he, he's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be real with God about this. I'm going to agree with him about it. I'm going to stop trying to cover it up. And I'm going to go to the Lord and I'm going to bring it all to him. I'm going to confess my transgressions, all of them, to the Lord. I'm going to really deal with it all right here before the Lord. And, and look at what happened. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, no, no penalty box time. No, no waiting period. 
know like, well, okay, David, let's, let's have some groveling here. Let's really, a little bit more, please, right? Like, all right, let's see if you're really serious about this. No, I mean, like, he, he comes to the Lord honestly, boom. His sin is forgiven. We have a forgiving God. Amen? Amen? Praise the Lord. We have a God who is willing to give us a full and complete pardon for our sin. Now, some of us, we were reading 1 John this week. I invite you to turn to 1 John just for a, just for a minute. Page 1021, 1 John chapter 1. And we can see this, this same truth so clearly articulated by the Apostle John here in chapter chapter 1. It says in verse 8 of chapter 1, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if we're trying to cover up our sin, if we're trying to act like it didn't happen, or it's not that big a deal, really we're just deceiving ourselves. That's not actually the way it is, but... If we confess our sins, plural, right? Like we're, we're bringing it all to the Lord. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. He's willing to forgive us our sins. Like, like the fact that we have sins should not keep us from going to the Lord. It should make us run to the Lord because he's willing to forgive us. Of our sins. That's the kind of God that we have. And if you go back to Psalm 32 for just a moment, and, and we'll see here this, this beautiful thing that in verse 5, David says, I did not cover my iniquity. But that's not the first time in this psalm that this word cover has been used. If you go back up to verse 1, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered that's so that's so interesting that what god is wanting us to know what he's wanting us to understand is that when god forgives our sin he covers it it's not like this fake covering that we try to do where we try to act like it's not real this is like a real covering like our sin is really covered i mean even go over to psalm 103 turn over there to the right later on in the book of psalms Psalm 103, and look at verse 10. This is another psalm that David wrote. And in verse 10, look at how David writes about the way it is when our sin is covered, when our iniquity is forgiven. He says in verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. God is going to choose to treat us as if those sins had not really happened. Like in a real way, those sins are covered. He says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. That's not really from us. That's from him. And then in verse 12, he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And if you go to God with your transgressions, the full some of them, and you're acknowledging them to him, and you're confessing them to him, your sin is going to be forgiven, and it's going to be covered. It's going to be wiped away. I mean, if you start going east, you will never start going west. I don't even know which direction east is, right? But that, that's the truth of it, right? It's, it's as far away as is physically 
possible that God is going to do a real work to declare you righteous in a real way. Not in a way that we try to make our th- ourselves think of ourselves as righteous. So really, the truth here today is either you're trying to cover your sins or Jesus Christ is covering them with his blood. I mean, that's the way it works today. And I, I'd encourage you to write down uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 11. That's a passage I'm going to ask you to read this week with the follow-up questions on the back. And the, the, the Corinthians were such a good example of what it looks like to really deal with sin, to really be honest about it, to not be trying to hide it, and, and to do whatever it takes to deal with sin in their life. Now, I mean, we've been seeing, if you're in Psalm 32, go back there. We've been seeing David's example, how he acknowledged his sin. And then basically he stops kind of sharing his own story. And he says, hey, because this is the way that this happened in my life, therefore, in verse, verse 6, therefore, what I know to be true, what I found, the forgiveness that I found in the Lord, in his forgiveness, he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. At a time when you may be found, what is that talking about? Are we saying that God's got like office hours, right? That like forgiveness is a seasonal thing, like forgiveness for the summertime, fall, no forgiveness, pain and sorrow in your classes, right? Like, no, what what are we talking about? And then he uses this next phrase. He says, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. I don't know what you think when you think of a rush of great waters, but I think that David is actually referring back to Genesis chapter 7 in the flood. There was a time where God judged the world, that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Everyone was just living in sin and rebellion besides one person and his family that were doing what was right, Noah. And so God decided to judge the world through a worldwide flood where it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and the floods came and they rushed and everyone on the earth who was not in the ark perished. Now, I don't know if you've ever really considered how serious that is, how intense it is. I mean, many people would say that possibly drowning is one of the worst ways to die. I I don't know how they come to that information that I'm not really surveying dead people. Um, (laughs) But that's what they would say. They would say that drowning is one of the worst ways to die because it's really like your lungs are filling up with water and you are suffocating. I don't know if you've gone down to the deep end of the pool and tried to hang out there for a minute, but pretty soon it starts getting pretty intense as your lungs are screaming for air, and imagine if you weren't able to have the strength to keep your head above the water. I mean, that would be a terrible way to die, and that's the way it went for everyone. And David is saying that, hey, when the ark, when the door of the ark was closed, I mean, the ark was being constructed for a long time. It took him a long time to build a boat that big to get all the animals on the ark. But once the door to the ark was shut, and the rains came, and the floods rose, there was no chance for the people outside the ark. There was no salvation. There was no mercy. There was no forgiveness. And David is saying, hey, because I know that forgiveness is available now, you should go to him now. You should go to him at a time where he can be found. Let's get this down for point number two. Get forgiven before it's too late. Get forgiven before 
it's too late. Now, I mean, we could look back to the time of the flood, but as we read this last week in Second Peter 3, Peter's saying that there's going to be a similar time coming in the future where he's not going to flood the earth with water again. It's going to come through fire. And I guarantee you there's going to be a time where people are going to wish that they could get right with the Lord and they will not be able to. And I know for you, I know for you that that day is going to come at the day that you die. If you have not been forgiven from the Lord before you die, it's game over for you. There will be no chance to get right with the Lord. There will be no forgiveness. After death comes the judgment. That's what you can expect. And I know so many people that, that seem to get close. They come to the church and they, they learn the truth. They feel conviction about their sin. And, and rather than really dealing with it, bringing it to the Lord and getting it forgiven and trusting in Him, they try to do something themselves. They try to try harder. They try to, to do better. They, they start to feel like, well, at least getting me church, get, going to church gets me close enough where I'll be all right. And right now, God is being patient. Right now, God is being patient. He's delaying the judgment because he wants people to be saved. That's what Peter told us, that we should count the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's the point, is that now is the time where salvation is still available. Now is the time where it can still be found, but there's going to come a time where that's over. And what a fearful thing that would be to fall into the hands of the living God as your judge, not as someone who's covering your sin, but as someone who is uncovering your sin, someone who is putting it all on display and righteously judging you for all of it. I get so scared when I hear people acting like they have time. David is saying the time is now. You don't know that you're going to be living next week. This week could be the week of your death where then you're going to face the judgment and then there will be no chance to get right with God if you're not already right with him now. So why would you wait? Why would you delay when this kind of forgiveness is on the table? I mean, look at what David says in verse 7. He says, okay, not only uh, did I get forgiven, but now you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And isn't that such a precious picture that David is painting here for us? That, that you are a hiding place for me. Like you are a place where I am, like rather than having to fear you and fear your judgment, you're a place where I'm safe. Like I found safety in the Lord that you preserve me from trouble. Now we might think, okay, preserving me from trouble. Okay, I'd like that. No traffic on the 405. My kids always doing what I'd like them to do. I'd like some preservation from that kind of trouble. But I, I think we're misinterpreting that word because often this word trouble is talking about trouble from an enemy or trouble from an adversary. That's the kind of trouble that we're talking about. Now, we can definitely understand that there were times that God definitely protected David from his physical adversaries, from his physical enemies here on this earth. But don't we all have an enemy of our souls? Isn't there one enemy that rises above all of the rest? Aren't we talking about Satan himself is the enemy? I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation with me, the last book in the Bible. So just turn all the way 
to the end, the last large book that we have to really get into. And it's going to be fascinating to read this book together in a few weeks. Revelation chapter 12. Uh, Turn there with me. Revelation chapter 12. This is one of the things that God told John to write down that will take place in the future. And it says in verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Did you see the way it describes what had been happening before Satan was thrown down, before he was expelled from the presence of the Lord? Did you see what he was doing there? Who accuses them day and night before our God? Is that, is that a little bit unsettling to have the thought that Satan himself might be accusing you? Might have accused you in this last year? Maybe Satan himself has accused you before the Lord. That he knows some of the sins that you've engaged in and he is bringing them up in the presence of God. Is that a, is that a sobering, frightening fact to know that that's taking place right now? That's the way that Satan is currently operating. That's going to come to an end in the future. But right now he is accusing them, and not just seasonally, day and night, constantly, repeatedly. I mean, we have trouble. We have an adversary who is out to get us. And if we think about you know, some of the sins that we've committed, he's, he's got actually ammo. He's got real things. We have really sinned that he could really bring up before the Lord. But go back to Psalm 32. It says that you preserved me from trouble. And look at what it says next. That you surround me with shouts of deliverance. You want to know what's going on right now in heaven? Maybe even if Satan were there to accuse you. If you have really gone to the Lord and acknowledged your sin, confessed your transgressions to him, and he has forgiven you that the blood of Jesus Christ has covered your sin. You want to know who's shouting down Satan every time he brings an accusation against you? It's Jesus Christ himself. You're surrounded by his shouts of deliverance. Every time Satan wants to bring that up, Jesus is like, I paid for that. I covered that with my blood. I paid it in full their transgression has been paid for and their sin has been covered that's the kind of shout that god is surrounding us with i mean david is not saying like yeah i mean when you've got space in your calendar you should get around to experiencing this kind of forgiveness i mean god he's got space in his calendar at the current moment we don't know when that space is running out. But like, you know, if you get around to it, take your time, really, really, you know, just if you, if you want to wait, that's okay. No, David is like, this is so good. This is so tremendously awesome. How could you wait to experience this kind of forgiveness, this kind of relationship with the Lord where he is, he's making us safe, he's protecting us, he's preserving us from our adversary, and he's surrounded us. There's no like left flank that's uncovered. We are completely surrounded and secure in Jesus Christ. 
I mean, why would you wait? Why would you delay one more day to do that? I want to encourage you, if you know God's been working on your life and you've got sin that you have not dealt with, you have not confessed, you have not agreed with God about your sin, don't wait another minute. Do it now. Because we don't know that we have another minute. And it's so good. Why would you delay? Why would you keep messing around with the, with the weak sauce things of this life when you could have Jesus Christ defending you forever? does not make sense. Now, we've got another transition. You know, so David was sharing his own experience, and then he's really, you know, exhorting us for what we should do. And then the, the tone kind of shifts to where it almost seems like the, the speaker who's doing the talking changes between verse 7 and verse 8, where it says, I, and it really seems like God himself is kind of taking up the mic you know, taking a hold of the pen here for a minute and, it, and is really speaking himself. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I mean, now God is saying to David, like, okay, we, we've got your sin forgiven and it's covered now. But now what I really want to do is, is I want to teach you. Uh, I want to instruct you in the right way to go. I, I, we don't want it to be this constant like, okay, I sin and then I get forgiven and I go right back to sin and now I got to like be pressed down again by the Lord and forgiven. I, I, I want to uh, get taught. I want to actually, you know, know what God wants me to do and follow it. I, I mean, you could write down Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 12. Write that down on your notes. That'd be a great passage to read this week. But in that passage, it says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. But that same grace is also training us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. David, God's saying to David, all right, we've, for, we've got forgiveness. Now let's get to instruction. Now let's actually teach you the right way to go. And, and, and look at what it says there. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I mean, doesn't that just sound like personal? That like, it's not just like, hey, I'm just going to throw out some general things for you there. But no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really make it personal for you, David. I mean, I just think for us, is, I mean, we're really hearing the instruction of the Lord every day as we get into the Word. And we've got kind of a, you know, a, a one chapter a day plan that we're doing, a lot of us, in Scripture of the day. And so it's like, you know, the next day we're just reading the next chapter. But doesn't it seem so often... That like when I read the Bible, it feels like that was the exact thing I needed to hear today. That was the exact thing I needed to be thinking through to prepare me for what God had for me today. I mean, that's how personal God is. And that's what he's saying to us, that he wants to instruct you and he cares about you. Like he actually wants to lead you day by day through his instruction, through his word. But then there's a, a warning that comes after that. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. A horse analogy. We're getting into the world of equestrian things here. Okay, what does this mean? Uh, we're in Southern California. We don't know a lot about horses here. I mean, maybe we see some, like, uh, some people riding horses, but that's, like, too expensive for most of us, right? So we just drive around in our horseless carriages. That's what we... We do, but if you've lived in a place like uh, the land of Texas, uh, you've actually maybe had a little bit more experience with horses. I mean, not everybody wears cowboy boots and rides a horse in Texas. Some, something that was surprising to me 
when I moved there in junior high, I thought everybody was, you know, we would still have the posts outside of the stores where people could tie up their horses and, and things like that. But I actually had to, got to have a few experiences with horses. And, and uh, what it says there is that which must be curbed with bit and bridle. I don't know if what, you know what those terms refer to, but the bit is actually something that you put in the mouth of the horse, right? And the bridle would be what we would think of as the reins, to the horse. So really, like when you get on a horse, you are moving that horse in the direction that you want it to go by something in its mouth. Like you're yanking it by something in its mouth. It's, it actually seems kind of intense when you think about it, but it's like that's actually what's required to get the horse to do what you want it to do. I mean, if you're on horseback, you can say, go left all you want. The horse is not going to follow your instructions, right? And, and maybe even... We might think even worse than that would be a mule. Now, there was this one time when I was in Texas in high school. Our, our kind of high school group took a trip where there was this place. that There was this little town maybe a half mile away. And there was this opportunity for you to rent a horse or, as they called it over there, a burrow, a mule. right? And it was $3 for the burrow and $5 for the horse. And I'm glad I paid the upgrade fee to the horse because one of my friends he said no i'm gonna go with the burrow and uh not a wise choice uh not a wise choice at all and so he he gets on the the burrow and you know we're there on our horses and you know we're we're riding off into the sunset as it were it feels it feels like and then pretty soon my my friend he 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 starts to to slip and the the saddle of he was sitting on actually like falls off of the burrow, right? And, and he lit, loses hold of the reins to this burrow. And this burrow is off and running, right? Like this burrow is not staying near my friend. And so, I mean, it was one of the great joys of my life to watch my friend <laughs> run through the countryside after this burrow. Because the truth of what it says right here, that without that bitten bridle in place, they go, right? Like they are not going to stay near you. And you know, this is God himself talking to David, talking to us. And he's like, don't be that way. I mean, how many times are we so lazy at actually paying attention to the instruction of the Lord? Many of us, we're not even looking at it consistently in our lives. We're trying to help everybody. We're trying to get this to be a a united group effort here at our church that we're going to read the Bible. We're going to pay attention to what he says. We're trying to pay close attention to what he says, because we want to do it. And, and some of us, we're still being very reticent, very lazy at that. So let's get this down for point number three. Let's just say it real simply. Don't be the mule. Don't be the mule. Some of you right now are coming in today, and God thinks of you like a mule that he has to force to do what is right. If he's not going to actually bring some kind of pain into your life, you won't follow what he has for you to do. You will reject it. You will make it something that you will not do in your life. He says, don't, don't let it be that way. Don't be like that. If you're like that today, that might be a transgression that you've got to really confess to the Lord. That maybe even right now, because you have such a lax attitude toward his word, that he's been pressing you down. You've actually felt his hand upon you. Don't be that way. Don't make it to where he's got to force you to do what's right. Put yourself in the spot where I want to do what's right every day. 
I want to know what God wants me to do. I want to know him better. I want to follow in his ways because I know that's the way of joy. I want to avoid all of this fever heat of summer sapping my strength. I want to avoid my bones being wasting away and groaning all the time. I want to have joy all the time. And the joy that we can have, it's going to be found in obedience to what God has for us. If you're living a life even beyond this summer where you're really paying attention to the instruction of the Lord and following him, you're going to have happiness, my friends. You're going to have joy because his commands are so good. He knows how to keep us from trouble. He knows how to guide us in the way that we should go. And he wants to help us. He wants to make it personal for you. Why would you, why would you neglect something that, that, would, that, would, that would be so good for you? And look at what it says here in, in, in verse 10. It, it even seems like he's wrapping it all up here where, where he makes these, these last statements. He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Now, I hope you notice there that there's only two categories. David's saying that either you're really trusting in the Lord, you've really come to him for forgiveness, and you're trusting in his forgiveness in your life, you're trusting that he's covering your sin, or you're wicked. That's not the way we like to think about it here in America. We like to find some kind of space in the middle. Even the book that we're reading in Scripture of the Day right now, First John, it, it, it's going to help us to see that there is no middle. You're either in the light or you're in the darkness. There's no middle ground. It's either one or the other. And, and I just think that for some of us who are even hearing this sermon, to hear about the forgiveness that we could have and then to keep living in our sin, I mean, how wicked would that be? How wicked would it be to reject such grace, such mercy, such forgiveness and love from the Lord? And it guarantees you, it guarantees you that if you are going to keep living in rebellion to the Lord, if you're not going to deal with your sin, many will be your sorrows. You have many sorrows in this life, and then all you will know is sorrow forever after this life is over. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. And I I just think for some of us, we've experienced that hand of the Lord kind of squishing us down a little bit, helping us to feel the weight of our sin, helping us to feel conviction. You want to know the scariest thing that could happen for someone who's here today is for God to remove his hand. I mean, right now, God is being so loving to some of us that he's pressing us down. He's not allowing us to find joy in our sin, in the things of this world, because he wants us to come to him, to confess our transgressions to him. He wants to give us that forgiveness. That's what the Bible tells us. But the Bible also tells us that there's going to be times where if people keep living in their rebellion, even though he's trying to press them down to get them to come to him for forgiveness, that he's going to give them over to it. He's going to allow them to go in the direction that they want to go. And that is the scariest thing in the world that could happen to you. That would be the multiplication of your sorrows that is only going to be getting exponentially worse as you head into eternity. Friends, I I just want to plead with you. If you're here today, don't wait. Don't wait. God stands ready to forgive you. He's not going to make you have to clean up your life. All you got to do is come to him and then he'll take it from there. Come to him. Find that forgiveness. But then, oh, look at, the, look at the next phrase. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Now, this word in the Hebrew that we translate steadfast love is this word chesed. 
Now, Hebrew's kind of an interesting language, right? It's got some of the gutturals that we shy away from here in the, in the English language. It's, it's almost like you have to have a little bit of you know, phlegm in your throat to really speak Hebrew properly, right? I mean, did you hear that? Chesed. Can you say that with me? I mean, didn't that just feel awkward to do that with your, with your voice? I mean, that is a word that maybe sounds like gnarly, like that sounds... Like, onomatopoetically, it doesn't sound good, right? But, but what it means is his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his never-ending goodness. Like, for, if we trust in the Lord, if we've gotten forgiveness through him, it's like that is what is now surrounding us. Not only are his shouts of deliverance surrounding us, but his goodness, his steadfast love is surrounding us all the way around. Like there's no direction that you can go in in your life where you are not going to experience the goodness of the Lord. Even in trials, as we've been learning about, it doesn't seem like being in prison really put a damper on Paul's joy as he's writing to the Philippians. It doesn't really seem like the, the fiery trials that the people that Peter was writing to that we looked at last week had really affected them. They still had joy, even though they'd been grieved by various trials. That can be the case for us, that we can experience God's never-ending goodness. I mean, this is even something that we see David saying, that I believe I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He says that in Psalm twenty twenty-seven. Like, that's the attitude that you and I should be expecting. If you've gone to the Lord and you've gotten forgiveness in him and he's covering you, he's surrounding you with his shouts of deliverance, all you're going to experience is his goodness all the time, every day for the rest of your life. And then when we go to heaven and we get to see him and we get to have the inheritance that he has been preserving for us, it's only going to get better and better for the rest of eternity, friends. I mean, does that stoke you up? Does that fill you with joy? Okay, a couple of us, we're there. All right, we, <laughs> apparently I need to preach this sermon a little bit better here. Um, well, I mean, if you think about it, let's go to the next verse here. Because he says, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So he's talking to people that are now... He describes them as righteous. He describes them as upright in heart. Now, that's not something that we would be able to do ourselves, but that's something that we can actually be made by the forgiveness that we found, find in Christ. That like when we come to Christ for forgiveness, he declares us righteous. Not based on how good we've been in our life, but based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given to us. And, and if we're walking with the Lord, we're upright. In heart, like we're really, really wanting to do what pleases the Lord, really wanting to follow his commandments here. And, and there's this verse of, of response to everything that we've talked about in this sermon so far. Look at these things. It says, one, be glad in 
the Lord. It, 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 you know, like we would think about David when he says in, in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. Like, man, I just find so much happiness in the Lord, such rich delight based on thinking about all that he's done for me and how I'm now surrounded by his goodness, that, that he's declared me righteous. This is even a, you know, this, this next phrase, rejoice, O righteousness. It's almost like, like leap for joy, like let it well up within you. And then there's this last command, shout for joy. You, you know, we're getting into the Hebrew, what I've really found that shout means, shout. I mean, we're talking about a loud, ringing cry going out. And, and this is the response that, I don't know if you've, you've noticed this here, but these are commands. These are not optional things. This is not something that, well, if you care to, do this. Or if not, that's all right. No, we're actually commanded, based on all that God has done for us, to be glad in the Lord and rejoice and shout for joy. So let's get that down for point number four on your notes. Shout for joy. And feel free to put as many exclamation points as you would like after that. That's the way it should be. And, and if you think about it, that is the only rational response to what we've been talking about here today. I mean, let's just say that, I mean, summer's coming to an end and we got classes and syllabi, but we've also got like pumpkin spice and, you know, <laughs> sweaters and and football right for for some of us right i mean every season has its own unique joys and and troubles right um uh but let's just say that that you're a football fan and uh let's just say i mean we've got some world-class football teams here in here in southern california and even some world-class college football teams right two of them that come to mind are like you know, the University of Southern California, the Trojans, and then there's the other, other school, UCLA, um, the Bruins, right? Um, I feel like I have to say that to honor my father because he went to USC. I, I just feel like I have to do that. But let's just say that you're a Bruins fan, right? And, and you've been a Bruins fan for a long time. You went to university there, and you know the eight clap and everything like that. And, and let's just say that, you know, both the Bruins and USC do really well this year. And, and some odd way it works out that the two of them are playing in the national championship game at the end of the year. And it's a hard-fought game. It's like a, a really intense contest, and it's coming all the way down to the end. And let's also say that you're there at the game. Like, you scored tickets, and you and your crew have gone, and you are there, and you are just, like, so intense and waiting to see what's going to happen. And let's just say, hypothetically, that UCLA scores the final touchdown right at the end, and they win the national championship, defeating their rivals, USC. I mean, how would you respond? <laughs> see, do you see, do you see if the people who are UCLA fans, how they cannot help but respond with joy as a result of that? I mean, if you were there in the stadium, and your response to that was, hey, great game, guys. I mean, wouldn't your friends feel that was strange? Wouldn't your friends feel like that kind of response doesn't really fit with what we just witnessed? I mean, they'd be like, come on, how can you, how can you react so nonchalantly? We just won. We beat USC, national champions. I mean, and guys, we've got something more than football that we're talking about here. We've got the eternal salvation of our souls. And I just want to say... Does our response to that really fit 
I mean, this phrase, shout for joy, I, I don't know that if it would surprise you to learn that very often in the Psalms, we are commanded this same command, to shout for joy. I mean, just turn over to the next Psalm, Psalm 33, where the first word is shout. Shout for joy. Oh, there it is again, right? Okay. Shout for joy, O you. Doesn't it? It seems very, very similar here. Uh, Praise befits the upright. Like when God has made us upright, it makes sense that we would praise him. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Let's get the instruments out here. Let's get Ryan playing on the guitar. And it says, sing to him with new song. Play skillfully on the strings with... Okay, one person said it right. Loud shouts. Do you see the emphasis on the volume? They're like, if you were at that UCLA game and you were a UCLA fan, you would be screaming at the top of your lungs. But when we think about being made righteous, we think about God making us upright. Are we screaming at the top of our lungs for that? I mean, turn with me over to Psalm 35. Psalm 35 towards the end. Verse 27, it says, let those who delight in my righteousness, who delight that they've been made righteous, what should they do? Now we're talking. Shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Now turn with me all the way over to Psalm 71. Psalm 71. And we we could give many more references where it says shout for joy. Within the, within the Psalms, but look with me at Psalm 71, verse 23. It says, my lips will shout. Yes, God is among us. It will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. Okay, that's interesting. When is a time that we come together to sing praises to the Lord? Here we are, right? This is a time where we gather together specifically with a purpose. I don't know if you've been here for a while. We do it every weekend. When we gather together, we sing praises to the Lord. And we should be thinking that we should be not just singing, but shouting. You know, sometimes I get to stand in the back uh, of the worship service, and I, I, I get to kind of take it in from the rear. And uh, there's there's many Many times I'm really encouraged because it feels like people are singing out with praise to the Lord and they're singing loud. But there's been times in the history of our church that that the word that comes to my mind when I kind of just take in our worship as a church. You want to know what that word is? Unbiblical. And like, I mean, I have such a high appreciation for the guys up here, right, with with Ryan and Ron and, and every week they're meeting with Pastor Bobby. They are serving us so well, so excellently. I mean, the content of the songs, I mean, there's really a lot of thought, a lot of prayer that is put into choosing the songs every week because we want songs that are going to put the truth about what God has done and his goodness in front of us so that we can really rejoice in response to what God has done. There, I mean, our music team is working hard to play skillfully, 
on their instruments so they can not distract us, but actually serve us, like even encouraging us to well up with joy. And a lot of times as I look around, I see many people singing. I see some who aren't, and I see some who are even singing loud, but I see relatively few people who are actually shouting. I mean, this is a command from the Lord. We don't have the option to sing in a mild-mannered way when we're thinking about what God has done. I mean, let's just examine some of the content of the songs we sang this morning. This is amazing grace that you would take my place. I mean, when we sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain, thinking he was slain for me so that his blood would cover my sins so that I could be righteous. Can I respond by just being worthy is the lamb who was... I mean, by just going through the motions of that song? Do you see how that doesn't fit with what I'm actually singing about? Praise to the Lord, for he is thy help and salvation. Shelters thee under his wings, that he's a hiding place for me. Surely his goodness and mercy will daily attend thee, that I'm surrounded by his loving kindness coronation that sin is vanquished when christ is king that nothing can compare to the glory we will share when christ reigns on the earth we're singing for thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever and ever amen i mean does the way you sang that song really fit that truth we sing jesus paid it all and when before the throne i stand in him complete Jesus died, my soul to save, my lips will still repeat. I mean, how can you not shout that? Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. How can we not shout that together? Now, some of you are are like, okay, Pastor Bill, I'm picking up what you're saying, but I'm no singer. And we know. (laughs) Right? I mean, it's it's no secret to some of us, right? Um, Here's the deal, guys. Not everyone can sing. Everyone can shout. Right? You don't have to be a great singer to shout for joy based on what God has done for you. I I remember when I was in college, I went to a Christian college and we had uh, worship times every week there at our school. and, And it was really encouraging to see a group of people that were really excited to praise the Lord. And I remember one day I sat next to my my friend Tim that went to college there with me. And Tim is not a singer. Tim, I mean, maybe not tone deaf as a post, but close, right? Like, I mean, this guy just real low, monotone, like the whole like melody where it goes up and down kind of thing, totally lost on my friend Tim, right? And I sat with him that first time and I learned very quickly his level of musical skill and, and his ability to sing, but that didn't matter to him. Because what mattered to him was what he was singing about. He didn't care what other people thought about him. He cared about the joy that he had in the Lord. And so he was going for it. He was going for it. And, and over time, he actually became one of my favorite people to sit next to and to worship alongside. And it really gave me a lot of encouragement. Like, I should just be going for it as well. Like, I don't have to care what people think about how I sound. Or how good of a singer I am. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to impress other people. I'm here to shout for joy. At what God has done in my life. 
I mean, doesn't it seem like at the end of this, this time in God's word together, that that's what fits as we close? That we should, we should shout for joy together. And I'm going to do something unusual. I'm going to lead us in a song so that we can really focus not on the music, but on the truth that we're going to sing. So I'd invite you to, to stand up with me. And we're going to sing a song called, It Is Well With My Soul. And some of us who know that song, it's familiar to us. And I think what should hopefully excite you is not the music of the song, but the truth that we're going to be singing about. That we're going to be singing about God's goodness. We're going to be singing about the pardon that we have received in Jesus Christ. So as you sing this song, focus on the lyrics. And let's really respond with a shout of joy here together. When peace like a river attended my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my about our adversary.
Father, we give you great praise and glory that through the work of Christ that it could be well with our soul, God, that you would forgive not a part of our sin but the whole. God, that you would give us a hope and a relationship with you where now we would be safe and protected, God, experiencing your goodness every single day of our lives, even in the midst of great trials and great difficulty. And then you will return to bring us to be home with you where we could be with you forever. God, we praise your name. But God, we also ask that in your mercy that you would grant forgiveness to people right here, right now. God, we know that there are people that came into this service, God, and they're still trying to cover their sin. They're not willing to deal with it. They're not willing to acknowledge it before you. God, and I ask, I plead with you, Lord, that you would not allow them to do that any longer. God, that they would do what David did. That they would confess their transgressions to the Lord and that they could join us in the shout of joy for your forgiveness. God, we're so thankful for you, God. We want the shout to ring out from this place, God. We want everyone to know the joy that we have based on your forgiveness for your glory. And in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.